0: That we do baptisms whenever somebody says they want to be baptized, and so uh, if, you need, uh, if, you is, if that is your next step, then we would love to hear from you and to be able to follow through on your obedience and love to Jesus about that. Hey, let me, uh, can, I, can I just tell you that as I uh, spent this week kind of uh, interacting with the, the principal at Estabrook, his name's Ryan, uh, Dr. or uh, uh, Mr. Johnson, uh, he's looking forward to Trunk or Treat in a grand way, but can I ask you to step into this opportunity? Some of you have, uh, but some of you need uh, to, to maybe make it a reconsideration. Uh, on whether that evening is something that you can give to this event. Uh, They're a community that is uh, changing uh, the atmosphere of kids and parents in there. Uh, I think this would be okay. Uh, uh, Mr. Johnson is a follower of Jesus. And can I just tell you, over the five years that I have been working with him and he's been the principal there, the environment the environment of that school has changed dramatically. And so we want to be a people who come alongside uh, the environment that's being changed there purposefully, prayerfully, and encourage that with the staff and with the parents. So if you have yet to sign up, we would want you to do that. Let me just tell you the stats. Right now we have 13 trunks, 300 students. Do you think that's good? the ratio needs to be a little bit higher on the trunk side, needs needs to be a little more sacrificial on our end. Did I say that out loud? I did. I don't mean that to berate or to beat up, I just mean that for you to seriously consider the opportunity we have to be a part of what I believe God is doing in the school there. And so, Consider it, uh, take that uh, connection card out, sign up, uh, let us know, and even if it is simply that you're donating candy or praying, and it's not just simply, that is huge. We need that, and to, to be uh, an impact that the Lord wants us to be in that school, and the partnership we have there, uh, just want to encourage you to do that. Well, this morning, we are going to be in the uh, letter of Ephesians. So if you would, uh, first, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, because it will not be on the screen. So those, and if you're, you're wondering what the Bible looks like, there's one in the pew before you. Uh, if you're wondering, I don't know what the page number is, uh, it's towards, towards this side of the, the Bible. It's towards the back of the Bible, all right? Or if you have your device, it's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, all right? Now, would you stand, would you stand with me in the honoring of the reading of God's word if you can, if you can? I just lost it. Ephesians chapter 4. Why did my Bible just do that? starting with the first verse somewhere here or there Paul writes this as a prisoner for the Lord then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received be completely humble and gentle, be patient bearing with one another in love make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, and baptism, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now skipping down to verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in their futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts having lost all sensitivity they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity and they are full of greed that however is not the way you learn the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him according to the truth that is in Jesus you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitudes of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in the righteousness and, in righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while, you are still, uh, while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Foot Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, Heavenly Father, I ask that as we take a look at this text and consider what it may say to us that Lord, you would allow our spirits to interact with your spirit. that Father, we would, we would be open to what you may have for us in regards to our way of work, our thought about jobs and considering our calling and vocation. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. We are to live a life worthy of our calling, Paul says. If you were to read what was prior in this letter, you will have read about the heights of what it is to live in the kingdom and about some higher level thoughts. But now Paul wishes to address uh, these Ephesians, the, those there, and us with the everyday earthy type of stuff that we live in, he says, "Live a life worthy of our calling." It, now, the incredible thing is that in our Western way of work, living and way of way of living, we tend to live in this thing called compartment compartmentalization. <laughs> easier for you for me to not say, I guess. Uh that calling can get relegated to a certain aspects of our lives. Our, our language is like this often when we speak. In my personal life, well, in my when I was with the Lord today, I mean that's my spiritual life, right? Or, you know, when I was bowling Nothing wrong with this, but what happens and what we have been uh, pressed into is this idea that we compartmentalize every part of our lives and even into the point at which has inundated our culture when it comes to sex. Right? Well, we can get into it, but we're not going to get into that one specifically today. We tend to create compartments as, the, as aspects of our lives fit into. Yeah, what Paul is bringing to us today is to consider as we follow Jesus together, one of our mission statements is something vastly different and wholly better uh, from his Hebrew way of living and thinking. In fact, uh, this living, you know, he's asking us to be, consider his thought, his framework You see where you work, spend your time and spend your money on, what you do with your weekends and your family structure and how you use your body, including every aspect of that is considered spiritual life. It's not compartmentalized. Yet, in our world, that's the way we have been pressed. But Paul is pressing them because they live in a similar frame of thought. Ephesus was similar to the way we have lived. They have this Greek pressing in. What's your favorite dessert? Uh, Baked dessert, somebody. Apple pie. pie. Yeah, it is the season, right? Apple pie, apple crisp, uh, apple donuts, all those type of things. Now, if you were to make an apple pie, what are some of the components that go into an apple pie? Apples. What? Flour. Flour. Sugar. Yeah, so when you take a bite of the apple pie, do you take a bite and go, mmm, I can taste the flour? Or do you take a bite and go, oh, mmm, I can taste the egg, or whatever, right? We don't do that. In fact, we'd probably spit it out. Oh, <laughs> yuck, right? And Paul is pressing us on this point that in, our, in their lives then, to be really honest, they were being pressed into this idea of divided life, compartmentalized living, thought life, spiritual life, sexual life, work, all of this was being separated. We wouldn't do that. And he's saying, nor should you. Or he's saying, he's saying as a Jewish framework, we don't do that and neither should you as a believer. But where do we get this great divide of mind and matter? Because that's really kind of the pressing. Some of you may f- be familiar with the name of Descartes. Uh, while he's not the only one, he's one that has pressed in and, and really kind of pursued this uh, idea in the Enlightenment and pushed this idea of mind and matter to separate ends. Right? Right? But long before he was around, this ideology, by the way it is, that's what it is, and it's one to be tested and tried, was not just left to him. It was in places and spaces of the first church, too. This is exactly why Paul's writing to the Ephesians and many other letters of the New Testament are written to attack this idea of Gnosticism. It was before that, but it was afoot. This idea of separating mind and matter, that your spiritual life, you could do one thing and other things. Maybe you know a little bit about Ephesians or Ephesus itself. Uh, the great artemis is the 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 one that they worshiped if you read in acts where paul's kind of making his way and making his ground on uh, the fact that jesus is the messiah and he's king over everything there's this great disturbance that he gets caught into but inside these temples uh in ephesians that's why it's all kind of divided that they would they would tell you you can live and be and act in a certain way over here but then be okay over there this idea of gnosticism was separating mind from matter this philosophical idea is afoot god was the creator of what we have been given earth sky and heavens but also remade remember he made us in his his image Uh, Not a separated image, but actually this matter that's combined together. Uh, C.S. Lewis commenting on this, uh, on on, uh, God's, uh, you know, on on the, the realm in which we live, he said the most materialistic of all religions is ours, and that God must love material things. After all, he made them. He's desiring, the, the C.S. Lewis is attempting to try to get us to understand that what, where we live, is, can, is it's all embodied, it's together. The biblical story gets its way worked in and expressed in the material substance of the world in which we live. To be a follower of Jesus, a disciple, we are to be a people who get up, go to work, eat meals, create budgets, help our kids, go to meetings, hang with friends, and make weekend plans, all the while keeping in step to a different kingdom's pace not to the pace of those around us in our culture in our world we're called to live out a different way of life and that starts now that lasts forever not just a a piece of us but the whole of us leslie newbegin writes live in the kingdom of god in a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer We're, we're supposed to live in a in a way that is different than those around us? So when you interact at work, you date, uh, you're with your spouse or your kids, the way you use your money, is it provoking questions for which only Jesus can be the answer? Or are you blending or camouflaging into the common culture all around us? Is your life peculiar to those around you going, hmm, why do you do that? Why do you get up on Sunday mornings when the rest of us are having a cup of coffee and having waffles with our kids and go to this place, this building with other people? Why? Why do you stop and pray instead of worry and fret, right? What does it mean to parent kids, create a budget, bus a table like if you're working or be in a dating relationship or being meetings that evokes questions about who God is? This is what Paul is getting at in this section of Ephesians with the Ephesians. He's asking them to stand out, to be different. And as we follow Jesus together, this is where we live. We live in the dust of the everyday, or the dirt if you want. While loving God is our daily rhythms, and it needs to be a part of it, we need to be fully immersed in our everyday coming and going with and being with like God, to have an intimate and individual aspects of our lives set up by him but pronounced differently when we hit the world, right? So when we spend time with Jesus, he shouldn't just make the impact when we're with him and having our coffee and our devotions, but he should truly make the impact in us when we're around others who need to see the light and need to taste the salt. Yet we cannot do this living on our own, can we? As we've spoken about before, our willpower is not enough. Even if our desires are there, our willpower is not enough. And it eventually gives up and it gives in. This way of God gives us the, this way of God, he gives us the grand deposit of his Holy Spirit to be able to live out what we're called to be and to do. This uh, peculiar people, uh, not extraordinary, but ordinary, common, we live in this way, we start to express from the inside out, not from the outside in, what it means to have a relationship with God. How we live following him into everywhere, that we, everywhere we go. So this idea of following Jesus. If that's the case, then how is it expressed in one of the, most, one of the largest areas of our lives that we give ourselves to for most of us? Our work. How, how, is it, how is it carried out? And for those of you who are trying to check out because you're saying maybe I'm, I'm not in work, we all have our work. We'll get it defined here in a second. But I'm not talking about necessarily those who go to work. But what is your calling? What is the vocation that Jesus has called you to do? So in definition, vocation is whatever you do, do to produce good in the world for God. Whatever you do to produce good in the world for God. This means there are working professionals, stay-at-home moms or dads, part-time or retired people or students. We all have our vocation. As we would send our kids off to school, it's like, this is your job. You are to excel, not because we want you to excel, because Christ wants you to excel where you go. Whatever that looks like in whatever framework it it takes. Every last one of us has been placed in situations that we might choose or never choose to live a God-given vocation to bring heaven to earth. That is our opportunity. That is the audacious call that God places on us to do. Ephesians 4, verse 28 says this. uh, In the last part of our text that we read, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing, doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. So why would Paul speak in this way? Historically speaking, some scholars speculate that the Ephesians followers have lost their jobs, as I alluded to, because of this uproar that transpired in Ephesus between those who are followers of Jesus and those who uh, despaired on them, and they may have lost their job. And so even in light of that, you can kind of say, well, uh, you know, the idea of making sure that my kids are fed by stealing is, seems to be a justifiable option, right? And, G- and Paul is saying, no. They may be hungry, but that's not justifiable. No amount of that is. But as equally possible in the Ephesian church and some of the believers were that storekeepers, and this is biblical, by the way. This is not just specific to Ephesians. God just doesn't like this. That there were storekeepers cheating their customers' employees. Weights and scales were common to cheat during that age. And so possibly... This also may have been going on in and around those who are claiming to be followers of Jesus. He's saying, stop, stop stealing, cross the board. It is not right. And again, we can, we can just quickly go to the Old Testament where God points out the people of God are stealing from one another and others. Paul insists in Ephesians chapter four, and then he insists again in chapter six that Jesus redefines vocation, how we think about, and how, how we think about it and how we relate to it, how we practice it. You'll find that some, uh, the, the same sort of thing that's not only here, but it's in other places throughout scripture, in Thessalonians and Galatians and Colossians. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12, it says this, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent upon anybody. So Paul, the pastor, is exhorting the church to work hard, become self-sustaining so that, that they were not entirely dependent on others to find a job or avoid getting caught up in the workplace drama, potentially even stealing, I suppose right? But to place yourself there with integrity, with character that wins the respect of others around them. Paul seems to think that how you think about your work is equally as vital an environment for your discipleship to Jesus as the gathering community of faith or in hospitality or even in the prayer room, which we have to say, yes, that's absolutely correct. He. Jesus expects all of that to be transformed by him, and that discipleship happens in all places and all spaces. But the question is, do we think about our discipleship to Jesus in this way? Do we think that the workplace is, is as crucial of an environment of discipleship, of following, of conforming, of training ourselves in the likeness of Jesus? Ephesians is gonna speak with clarity as to why Paul thinks this way. Verse 17, he says this, so I tell you this and insist on in the Lord that you may, must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of, the, of their thinking. If you first jump down in verse 23, he says be made, that they were to be made new in the attitude of their minds. This word in English in these two verses of thinking and minds are actually the same ancient Greek word. Which can be translated as mind, thinking, or understanding. This word is not used about morality necessarily, but about imagination. The word here is for a renewed person, for a committed follower of Jesus. His or own imagination is unknowingly stuck in a fallen paradigm. It is not somebody who needs to be convicted, or even needs to be to confess, because they just don't know yet. And he's saying, your minds have to be freed from this. You have to loose your minds to the opportunity that's there to live for and with Jesus. That's what he's talking about. That their way of thinking about work, their idea of compartmentalizing to the spiritual, personal, emotional, uh, needs to be reimagined by Jesus. Jesus into the professional and vocational area. But oftentimes, as you know, and you're compressed into knowingly or unknowingly, you're giving a Western way of thinking about your workplace. Many of us, have an understanding of our vocation, be it consulting, teaching, parenting, finance, lawyering, busing tables, whatever it may be, and it is wrapped around this 21st century idea of American culture and attempting to try to live it to Jesus. This needs to be challenged and broken in us. If you keep the door, door to your vocational life shut, As we know about many other aspects of our lives, God will not enter that door. God is, he is all powerful, but he is quite the gentleman when it comes to us. And he desires that our workplace be changed and transformed. Just as Paul was attempting to try to change and transform this concept and idea for those living in Ephesus at the time. That our idea about work and what happens there and how it forms us is far more crucial to us than we would ever imagine. So where do we get this idea that our workplace is is one of the grand places in which God uh, has designed that we live out the kingdom, that we show Jesus and show God in the best place? Well, let's just take a the biblical storyline and kind of trace it through if we may. Genesis, what we find in the opening pages of the Hebrew Bible is that God is a worker and creator. So if you're questioning this morning, well, I just want to live for retirement. I'm not opposed to that. But even inside retirement, this idea of vocation needs to be defined by you. Or as some of my friends have told me, just recently, I retired too soon. I don't know what to do. I'm lost. You have to have a definition. And that's what I'm I'm saying. It's whether you're young on the career end, vocation end, or you're high school or you're older, this falls into our laps, all of us. It falls into our laps. But God is a worker and creator. We, we, We read in this wondrous poem, marveling at the lack of the scientific, yet in awe we see that God worked and he created by the seventh day, it says in Genesis 2, God had finished the work. Get the words that are printed here. He had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then he, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the... You got it. He worked. Yeah. His creation, man and woman, are given the same very purpose planting them in the garden he commissions them in his creative design the lord god took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it in genesis 2:15 yet what we know happens in a period of time between genesis 2 and 3 is something that changes some things their autonomy man and woman's autonomy caused a great grand uh, caused this great Grand gift of work, of subdue and rule, to be con- con- corrupted. And with that, I think sometimes in our minds, we then dismiss this idea of work as part of God's redemptive plan, but it is very much a part of God's redemptive plan. Take a look at Exodus. If you have your Bibles, again, it's not going to be on the screen. I, uh, Exodus 1, or Exodus 3: 31 verses one through five. It says this, then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God. Notice that. With wisdom and understanding, with knowledge and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut, cut and set stones, to work in wood and to engage all kinds of craft. This is the establishment of the temple and what does God do? The very first person who is filled with the spirit of the living God is not a prophet and it's not a priest. It is a common laborer, if you will. Someone who has an artistic craft. He fills him with the spirit of God and says, be about the work of your hands. And your great, the, the great imagination that I've give you, given you for God. Moving to David. Saul has used up his last straw with the Lord, and Samuel is out seeking another king for Israel. While with Jesse, Samuel is with Jesse, Samuel is pinged because he sees all the sons lined up, all the ruddy looking sons are lined up that Jesse presents to Samuel and Samuel says, hey hey Jesse, are these all the sons? Nah, we got one of the young runts. He's out in the field tending the sheep. That's exactly how it went because this idea of youngest is not uh, what you would think it, really, this idea of youngest is he's small and he's, he's not important. Not at all. Yet what we see and we need to hear is God often takes what we often see as unimportant, small and insignificant and makes them significant. Well, what we know is that Jesse says, or Samuel says to Jesse, well, bring him in. And what happens? They anoint David. But this is the question I have for you. What did David get anointed to? And what did he get anointed for? David immediately goes back to what? Tending sheep. He didn't set off to be temple priest at all he wasn't even called to be prophet but when he assumed a position what position did he take king a king is a political if nothing else position god anoints him and sets him in place to what create the flourishing for his people and to set a tone for not only his for the people of god but for the whole world at the time do, do, are you getting it? That God doesn't God doesn't commission necessarily people for a place of being missionary or pastor, but He commissions those throughout time in places of work to create a flourishing a way of go. Now, quickly, we'll go through a few others. Joseph, from sister to the care of of all in Potiphar's house to second command of Pharaoh. Is he priest, pastor, teacher, shepherd? No, not even close. He is a political person caused to create flourishing for, his, for God's people. Moses wandering in the desert to leading the Hebrew people in the promised land, right? More of a prophet. But where is it happening? Not in the temple. It's happening on the streets, in the rural area, in the dust of everyday living. Ruth, a Moabite, not even part of the clan of God's chosen people who has compassion on her mother-in-law and what does she become? She (laughs) she becomes part of the Messianic line. Not inside the temple, not inside the church, but where most of you live and serve and work. Esther She's just minding her own business, being snatched up for a, in a beauty contest for a Persian king wanting another queen. And what does she do? Not inside the temple, but inside a palace. She leads, she leads people, her people, the Hebrew people, in, from annihilation, potential annihilation, to flourishing. And again, as we've talked about, David. Do you see what's happening here? Uh, That God desires the work of the kingdom not to happen potentially inside. He has blessed what the church is and has been around, but he is saying to us over and over again with this biblical storyline that it happens not inside the walls of the church, but it happens in the workplace and the everyday marketplace of what's happening around us. That's where the kingdom of kingdom happens. It doesn't happen in the world of community groups, curriculum, cultivation, meeting, meet, uh, meetings, and messages. But it happens in the place, it finds traction and fruitfulness in the everyday, your everyday. The office, the school, the drop-off line, the hospital, Kroger's. Yep, all of those places. All of those spaces. Martin Luther said this, the menial housework of a manservant or maidservant is more acceptable to God than the work of monks and priests. If you think that this changes with Jesus, we must think again. For about 30 years, where did Jesus spend his time? He spent his time inside a carpenter's shop. Working alongside, potentially, we would guess, his dad for most of it. And only three years of it did he he assume his role of mission and purpose. All of it was purpose, don't get me wrong. But the designed purpose for which God had sent him. He reads these words as he begins, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. How does that settle with you? I mean, the idea that Jesus himself spent most of his working or his life on earth at menial work, what we would consider maybe common, everyday, ordinary, laboring work. How does that speak into your workspace or your workplace? I think it should speak volumes. And when Jesus took up the mantle of ministry, where did it happen? Oh, yeah, 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 we know. He taught in the temples, it's it's what he was going to do. But where did the ministry actually transpire? It happened in the roadways, in the houses in the byways, on the, at tables. That's where the kingdom happened. See, it's, it's not in my world, if you want to put, we'll put us and them type of thing. It's not in my world that the kingdom transpired, that has been displayed for us through biblical history. It is in your world is where that it's displayed, shared, and fruit is harvested. And to think that it might change after Jesus died, it does not change. In fact, it spreads even farther. Pentecost, the flames that lit up those who were in the temple went out. They didn't stay in. Yes, they had their rhythms and we talk about them all the time because we need those rhythms of being together communally and scattered publicly. Ephesians, Paul, these words from Paul. I, so I tell you this. And insist on the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentile do, Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. We have to recategorize what we think about the idea of where the kingdom takes place. In Ephesians 28, he says, Be made new in the attitudes of your minds. Our, our task is not to compartmentalize our lives. Like, oh, I went to church, which we want you to. We don't, you don't go to church, by the way, you are the church you come to a building in which the church can then be vibrantly seen, experienced. We don't spiritualize some parts of our lives and despiritualize others. Jesus calls us into this full embracing, this full embodying. But what is our thoughts when we get to tomorrow, right? We sit down at our desk, we walk into the school, we go to our workshop. And it's Monday. Right? It's Monday. And what's our phrase in America, at least when it's Monday? Thank God Friday's coming. Right? I can't wait for the weekend. And maybe, just maybe, God wants you to recategorize your idea of what it means to live for him to be his Follower, following him into your world, into your spaces, to be his disciple. This idea, and we, you probably wrestled with it a few times. This idea of sacred setting and secular. Paul's pressing into them on the very same thoughts in Ephesus. This isn't something new. God will not enter where he's not invited. As I said before, he is the almighty, but he is gentle. Well, scripture and God does not tell us how to fulfill our vocations. It really doesn't. It does tell us to replace the culturally defined roles uh, or those ideas of our vocation with Christ-defined ideas of our vocations. And therein lies the fight Therein lies the, the work, because Scripture wants us to consider how Jesus would do us, do, <laughs> Scripture wants us to consider how Jesus would do our work if He were us. That's what He wants. We need to push back on the lie that God's work only happens in certain places and certain situations. On Friday evening, we got to hear from four different people who shared that they they recognize this truth and how they, how they have had to uh, work at that, test out that process in their own places and spaces. You see, it's, sometimes it's not a new work to do for those of you in the great thoughts of the great resignation. But it may be in a new way to think about our work that we're already doing. It's not to change where we, where we work, but it's, allow, but it's a place to allow God to change how we do it, that the activities that we do can become holy to him, given to him. And we need to invite God into those places. Brother Lawrence says this, our sanctification does not depend on changing our works, but in doing that, for God's sake, which we commonly do for our own. Richard Foster says if you're a dentist, Jesus can teach you to do dentistry as he would do it if he were you. The same is true if you're a court stenographer, a computer programmer, a research scientist, a janitor, a CEO of a national corporation, It is just as true if the thing you do to produce good in the world is to raise a family or to paint pictures or to create stained glass windows or peel potatoes. Whoever, whatever, wherever, he will teach you, learn from him. So quickly, now you have the biblical storyline that we've probably inverted at different times. We're thinking it happens in here. It's all about being in the walls, or with my community only. It has that rhythm. But truly, what God and the, where God has shown himself and the kingdom arrives is not in here only, but really in your spaces and places where you work, what you do for good. So how do we define vocation for those of us who are on the front end or maybe in the midst and kind of are lost? How, how do we define vocation for those of us who are kind of like struggling with the idea of what we're doing or not doing in the moment, I think that there are, uh, there, there are some, some things that we can find from scripture that help to define what we can do that can be lifelong and that can uh, really help us in our, our, our thoughts about doing work, being about work, and how work should look. So let's uh, let's, uh, do, let's look at vocation defined. I think there are three things that, uh, that need to be about our vocation. One is creativity. Two is compassion. And the third is calling. Quickly. Often our work is driven by an external need. Often our work is driven by an external needs. We know this. Something uh, We need something to eat. We need to support ourselves. We need to support our families. Those are driven by external needs. And we often have to and do take jobs in our lives to be able to support those. When I was in seminary, I worked at Pizza Hut. It was not my long-term desire to work at Pizza Hut. Did I enjoy it while I was there? I did, but it was just to support Kathy and I, so we could get on to what we believe the next thing is. We do those things from time to time, but vocation is this. Vocation is something we do no no matter if we have the job or we don't have the job. It is something that creatively just comes out of us, and we would do it no matter what. It comes from that creative core of who the creator is in us. So what is that? What is that that you would do no matter what even if you weren't paid or you do it even though you have a job and it comes out of you maybe some of us have found our our work is our vocation and that's great but it's an expression of who we are that we cannot stop even if we tried Jesus is the express vision of this. How is that the case? He's a king who serves. That's a complete role reversal than all kings that have come before him. He can do nothing but serve because serving for him as we have defined and will define again today is love. It's the idea of living for someone else. We'll get to the idea of compassion, but he can't help to do that. He could do no less. Most people that are power people want to sit in the power chair. What did Jesus do when he was on earth? He was a peasant. He went from house to house, and I think at times, while he was very rich in a lot of ways, he lived from meal to meal from other people. Think about it. A king who serves. Attempting to drive this point home with his own disciples, Jesus says in Luke twenty-two twenty-five: 25, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, but, and those who exercise authority over them uh, call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. You followers are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. Our our creativity is something he he could not stop and he's saying that that should be part of what we do. We're called to rule. Genesis says that clearly, but how do we do that? Jesus defines that as a servant, a servant of the Most High, So what might this mean for your vocation? What does this mean for you? I can't define that, but Jesus can help you in that process. Compassion. According to a study conducted by uh, CNN, Worker Satisfaction, the U.S. has an all-time low with less than 50% of the people in this country saying they're satisfied with their jobs. Uh, We can look at a lot of different things. Many of us may be happy with what we're doing, but others are not. Simultaneous to that is the work-induced depression as an all-time high, with one in one in every six clinically diagnosed cases of depression being attributed to the lack of satisfaction in the workplace. Can it, can I give you a reason for why I think that is the case? I think that it's that people are pursuing work based on ambition rather than compassion. Ambition rather com- than compassion. A deep sense of ful- ful- fulfillment and satisfaction when we, uh, is found when we do not pursue it directly. When we say we're, we have this job, When I remember I told you last week, my, my initial followings of people were about getting money. When money becomes your goal, it becomes very unsatisfactory. I heard... Uh, a prominent leader uh, in uh, a podcast I was listening, actually, yeah, podcast webinar thing I was listening, watching too. You know why you pay, if, sorry, for those of you who are lawyers, I do not mean this as a slight, but I thought it was a very, a very apropos. He said he was making the point that you have to pay people a very high wage who are unsatisfactory in their jobs. And his comment was, those that are lawyers, you wanna know why you have to pay them so much? is because many of them are not really happy with what they do they take other people's cases that they may not feel personally that's not all lawyers and i thought oh wow interesting he was comparing this idea with the fact that we need satisfactory pay but overpaying people doesn't work either you get you don't get any more out of individuals this idea of pursuing ambition rather than compassion is putting the cart ahead of the horse. Victor Frankl, introduced to me by an SAU, SAU professor, Dr. Darling, who's, who's now gone with the Lord, said, who's, who, he said this, who first said the pursuit of pleasure as an end in itself never ends in pleasure. Wow. According to Jesus, the fulfillment is the reward of giving your life away. To feel a sense of personal satisfaction and fulfillment is not a reward of going after that fulfillment. It is a reward of going after the life of compassion that is devoted to others, stewarding privilege, and I would add power, using what I have been given on behalf of others around me. See, this is what Paul is trying to get them to understand in Ephesians 4.28. We need to be made new in the attitudes of our minds. I have a friend who works in in a place in space where he knew three kids would not have a place to go because of the family situation that was upon them. He and his family took them in for 10 days. This is not his job. This is his vocation. (laughs) I, I also know another man who often hired others that would not get hired. They had criminal records and this and that. And oftentimes they would find themselves getting into trouble, uh, spending their weekends in jail, getting themselves into trouble, right? And being released to work release through the week. And he still never let them go, desiring to see their lives changed, transformed by interactions with people who are healthier and more whole, like this individual. David Brooks, the New York Times op-ed, wrote an article called the moral bucket list, wrote this article called The Moral Bucket List about the difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. And what he argues is that inside our world, we tend to be working towards resume virtues, and most of them are lies anyway. Most resumes are are half-truths, which makes them full lies, by the way, about who we are, Right? Because that's what people want to hear. That's what people want to see. That's what Facebook's about. That's what Twitter's about. That's what Instagram's about. They want to see what they want to see. But he said, we need to be be working on our eulogy virtues. Not necessarily thinking about what they're going to say about us, but desiring to live in a way that when they come to that point in their lives, they will have something good to say about us. Something that is, for us that are followers, It points to heaven, it points to Jesus. See, life is about relationships. And it's about living out the love of Jesus in those relationships. When we pursue compassion, not ambition, the end goal, we will find deep satisfaction in them. Calling, calling, calling vocation is the place where you find your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. We have to admit that there has to be a place. If we're going to work, we have to find this niche where there is a deep need, there's a felt need, and we have to meet that need. So how do we do that? How do we find that that place of deep need? Well, we want our our gifts and our skills to be uh, in a place where they're competent and where they find joy. It is that place that we find our calling. And yes, for those of us who are in the midst of it, uh, our calling does have duty involved with it. That means there are things in our job, in our job places that we would rather not do, but it, it is a part of what we are. In fact, I was listening to this. Uh, I was listening and reading about the idea of fidelity, and you know, uh, m- most marriages are 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 bookend. We we see uh, in some we see the front end the. Uh, you know, the the beginning of love and all of that. And then we we see the end of the love, usually when people are passing away. We know that's celebrated. But we often don't give much thought about the middle uh, of this place when people live in true fidelity to one another. It's quite boring. It's the everyday humdrum. It's the coming and going. Can I just tell you that while that's true about a successful marriage, and I would say a biblically successful marriage, doesn't mean you don't have your highs and lows and all that kind of stuff, but it's truly, it's not, it's not a, this whole thing about highs. It's about living day in and day out in the boring, that the very truth is that our spiritual lives are often found in the same way. Our callings are often found in the same way. It is not always in the next greatest big thing. It is, in the, it is in the fidelity to what God has called us to in this place. But what tears apart our calling? What is it when we, we're fired up on the front end about what God has called us to do that we get somewhere along the lines and we realize that, wait a second, what's happening? Because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not as happy as I was. I'm, I'm not as joy-filled. Could I just say competition may be the thing that infects it? doesn't matter if you're a stay-at-home mom or a dad or a CEO. Competition in the workplace tends to ruin the joy of the workplace. We tend to start to, if you're, if you're a stay-at-home parent, you start to compare yourself to your, those kids over there. They, they know their alphabet. You know, we start to compare and we forget the joy of what God has called us to do. Or if you're a CEO of a company that's been given to do one specific thing or a thing to do, right? And to present that, we always are chasing this competition, whether it's inside the company or inside our spheres or even outside. So if vocation is defined and this is something for you to wrestle through, through creativity, compassion, and our calling, then how do we, how do we stay in this place of following Jesus quickly? Our next steps are this. We have to ruthlessly deal with this compartmentalization that we live in in our world. It's as simple as that. We have to ruthlessly Take down the walls that we may have built or others are building for us. The secular, sacred, the work, the personal, they all come together. They blend themselves. And secondly, we have to define our vocation in the way that Jesus defines our vocation, not in the way the culture defines our vocation. That's your work to do. It's our work to do. But how does this look well what is my success as a pastor is my success as a pastor having a a large church with a lot of things going on inside of it or out of it or is it or is it this idea that i'm called to love a, a few people faithfully and obediently, and through that, I have other people who see that and follow in that, but truly, my call is to love whoever God has put it before me and to lead in a way that allows others to follow in the same way. How does Jesus redefine our success based on His kingdom? How would he redefine your work tomorrow morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, one of the very areas that we spend most of our time in is our work. Whether that is a, a workplace that's in the home or outside the home. It's one of the way, places we give the majority of our time and yet, Father, I know it's one of the least areas that often we talk about the church. At least I have. So I ask first that you'd forgive me. And you'd forgive me for not to bringing this topic, this central topic that is so important to all of us that has so many places of satisfaction and dissatisfaction. Highs and lows. Questions Confusion and queries. Father, I pray that even as I've just cracked the door this morning, that Father, those of us here would consider or maybe even reconsider what you're calling us to and and how to live out our work, our vocations for you. That you would guide us that the pressures we feel may be more due to our own inability to define and clarify what you have called us to than those bosses around us or the work environment we're living in. So Lord, I pray, I pray that when we say we surrender and we follow you, into our world wherever you may lead that father we are truly surrendering all that we do and all that we are to you because father we want to be available to you we want to be available that your kingdom may come your will may be done on earth as it is in heaven and not around a a prayer meeting only not in our community groups only, but into our workplaces and spaces where we may see the fruit of the kingdom and the harvest plentiful. Lord, give us your imagination, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.